Please do turn with me to Luke's Gospel, to chapter 23, and our text is the single verse, verse 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they parted his raiment and cast lots. Christ's words of forgiveness. Well, we've been thinking recently of the Lord Jesus as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. We described it as holy ground, as Christ is pointing his head, his heart, towards the cross. And here we find him on the cross in this chapter. And we're going to think, God willing, in the coming weeks of what we call the seven sayings or the seven sentences of the Lord Jesus as he dies upon the cross. If Gethsemane was holy ground, as Christ is lifted up above the ground, we see words which have indescribable depth and meaning and solemnity, but also so much to teach us. You'll find on your sheets the references to these seven texts. You'll notice that three are in John, three are in Luke, and one each in Mark and Matthew. That adds up to eight because one of the seven sayings only is found in two Gospels. Why hast thou forsaken me? In Matthew 27 and Mark 15. So we look at these seven sayings. Let me try and introduce and give you some overall comments that will help us to understand what is happening. What is Christ saying on the cross as he dies and bleeds and bears the punishment that his people deserve? As he stands in my place condemned, what is he saying? Well, he says words of forgiveness. That's the first we shall look at this shortly. Then, Father, forgive them, for they know not what to do. But the second saying is a word about salvation. You see the things and the themes, that's why I've called out the subject of each of the seven sayings. The themes are lifting up in our sights what is important. The first theme is forgiveness. That's vitally important. The second is salvation. He has a final message of salvation as he hangs upon the cross. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The third one, he speaks to his own mother and to John. He says, woman, Behold thy son, what's that all about? The vital importance of family and relationship and love and the bonds that hold us and tie us together. He was going to be no longer here and he takes care for his own dear mother. Probably his father was no longer. And so he makes provision for her family, relationship, 
love, vitally important. Fourthly, the fourth saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He gives us something of an insight into the immense anguish that he alone is experiencing there upon the cross. Maybe it's significant that's the only one mentioned in another gospel. Twice it's referred to, why hast thou forsaken me? His anguish. The fifth one speaks in a very human way. He says, I thirst. He didn't take the drink, did he? He didn't take of the help that was offered to him. But he had to express something that his soul was going through. I thirst as he suffers. The sixth one in our list, he says these words, we sang it in the hymn. So simply put, words of victory, it is finished. What was finished? The whole plan of salvation promised from Genesis 3.15, promised through every book of the Bible, the great cable that runs through the day that he was born, pointed to the day that he would die. There in the manger, there's a promise of suffering. He says, it is finished. The only hope for you and for me and he's finished his work. The work that he came to do. The work that he did perfectly. He's finished it. He's accomplished what he set out to do. Words of victory. Total victory. Satan has been crushed. He's been trampled upon. Oh yes, there is a time pictured as a millennium not a literal thousand years, but that time from his first coming to his second coming when Satan seems to be prowling, he seems to be lying and deceiving ones and twos, but he won't deceive the church. And in that time, Christ is already victorious. Satan has been defeated. When Christ comes again, Victory will be celebrated and the triumph will be seen by even those that reject him. And then seventhly, words of contentment. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Seven sayings. Do you see the depth? You see the subjects which are alluded to. Let me tell you a few things as we Stand back, but come a bit closer to Calvary. People get these things wrong. I need to stress them. Did Christ die out of surprise? Was he snatched and seized? Was it something which he didn't want to happen? Was it an accident, a mistake? Was it something that he didn't want to happen that way? No. He chose to lay down his life. 
It was deliberate, intentional. He did it voluntarily. He could have called thousands of angels to come down, but he didn't. But he was in no way powerless. You see, people have the wrong picture. We shouldn't have a picture of Christ, but we should see the cross. And on the cross, we see a powerful Christ. Not a weak, effeminate man, helpless. We see one. Let me give you an indication of it. They came asking for him, didn't they? And he said to them, Whom seekest thou? He told them. They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he told them by saying something very significant. I am. The words that were spoken to Moses. The words which define that Christ is not just a man. He's the eternal Son of God. He wasn't hiding. He didn't give himself up weakly. I am the eternal God reveals himself. Look at the contrast to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When they were called, where are you? They're hiding. Not Christ in the garden. But Christ says, I am. I'm here. I'm ready. I have all the powers at my disposal. And in that moment, the soldiers fell backward. Those two words, I am, in our King James Version, the word he is in italics to help us. I am he, self-identifying as the Son of God. And in that moment they were struck and they were overpowered. There was a brief consciousness of the divine majesty. They got a glimpse of the one that they were about to crucify. Do you see? A weak saviour? No. The Son of God, who even just revealing who he is, they fell backwards, overpowered by his majesty. That's what the Word of God teaches. It's not what people see today of Christ upon the cross. Let's think more of his power. Secondly, as we introduce the cross, he demonstrates his power in several ways. For a few hours, as his human strength was ebbing away, twice he shouts with a loud voice. A voice that won't be quiet. And we know that in Isaiah, it prophesied that before those that condemned him, he was silent. When there was a trial, he said nothing. He didn't complain. He didn't put the just arguments to why what was happening was wrong. The biggest carriage of miscarriage of justice that there's ever been. No, he was silent because he knew it needed to happen. 
But on the cross, as it's happening, he shouts with a loud voice. Divine strength had not failed him. He was still the master of himself. He's still in control. And all the way through these seven sayings, we see evidence that he has all his faculties, his faculty of speech, of hearing. He has his wherewithal about him. He has his wits about him, if we can say that. He's still in charge. Everything that's happening is necessary. It's a choice. It's willing. Just turn to the psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 89. And I think we see something rather wonderful here, speaking of Christ. Psalm 89 and verse 19, the final verse we read. This is a prophecy. Then thou speakest in vision to thy Holy One. Who's that? It's Christ. And saidst, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. Well, there's only one that's mighty, and that's Christ. I have exalted, lifted up, one chosen out of the people. This is Christ. This is him. And he's been given help. I have laid help upon one that is mighty. A prophecy speaking three ways, three evidences that this is Christ, the Holy One, the One who is mighty, the One who is chosen, and help has been given to Him. He had all the help of heaven, help which He needed upon the cross, and help of heaven has been laid upon Him, upon One that is mighty. Well, thirdly, by way of introduction, we've thought that he was voluntarily laying up his life. Secondly, he's demonstrating his power. Thirdly, he's in total control. Until his final breath, he has all awareness about him. A.W. Pink says, referring to this very moment, in the final moments of his life, his mind reviewed every prophecy and he checked them off one by one. All those predictions that had reference to him and he ensured in the words that he says that prophecy has now been fulfilled. That's astonishing. In the midst of his suffering and anguish of soul and pain of body, he can even go back through all the prophecies about him. Isaiah 53, 12 says, He made intercession for the transgressors. He prays for his enemies. He prays for the sinners about him, and that's the one that we shall look at this morning, the first of the seven sayings. Forgive them, Father, 
for they know not what they do. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53, 12. He made intercession. He prayed for the sinners, the enemies that were all around him. He's in full control. Everything that's happening, every word that he says, every word that is spoken by others, he hears it. He takes it in, truly. No wonder the centurion said, truly this was the Son of God. He's displaying his power. He's revealing that he's in full control. Let me put it another way. He is so present. You heard that term, it's often used today. Be present. In the midst of a wedding, when two are coming together, people say, enjoy the moment. Christ wasn't enjoying the moment, but he was present in everything that's happening. He's taking it all in. He had to. He couldn't be anesthetized by taking a drop of alcohol. He had to bear all the pain. He has to be God and man while he suffers and dies in the place of all his people. Well, we notice as well his humility. He's been silent for some time. I don't know when his lips were first opened on the cross, but in our text, it's very interesting, verse 33, it says, when they were come to the place called Calvary, they crucified him, one of the thieves on one hand and one on the other. And then verse 34, notice it says this word, then, then. The first thing that seems to happen is after Christ has been silent, he'd been nailed, the crown of thorns, he's borne the lashings, the mocking. Then, said Jesus, he can be silent no longer. The time to be silent to fulfill prophecy has finished. Now he will speak. And in these seven sentences, he will have the last word. The first thing he says will reveal his humility. He reveals his humility again and again. What's the last words which men and women say before they die? Look at what I've done. Look at my achievements. The prime minister who's just been sacked stands outside 10 Downing Street and he or she, she says, I've done this and done that. What does Christ say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He doesn't mention one of his achievements. He doesn't state the facts. He doesn't correct history. 
He doesn't put them right to all the injustices that we feel so badly and we think, I've got to put that right. That was wrong. Somebody did me wrong. Somebody spoke about me unfairly. If ever there was one who needed to put the injustices right, it was Christ. And he doesn't do that. He speaks about those who've sinned before him. The first thing he's going to do is ask that they might be forgiven. No legacy, no accomplishments lifted up, but a demonstration of humility. But secondly, we can notice about verse 34, something rather wonderful. The beginning of the Lord Jesus' ministry was his baptism. And the very first thing that he did was to lift up his eyes to heaven and to pray. What's the first thing that he does on the cross? Pray. What's the final thing he does on the cross? Pray. What's the middle thing he does? The fourth saying, look in your table. He addresses the first, the fourth, the seventh of the sayings to his Father. He starts with prayer. He continues with prayer. He ends with prayer. Prayer started his ministry. It will end his ministry. Father, forgive them. He's only speaking to one, to heaven, conversing with the Father. Prayer was the activity of his life. It was the way he continued his life. It was the way he ended his life. His life was a life of prayer. And if him, how much more me? Thirdly, look at your table again and notice who he speaks to. He speaks to the Father. He speaks to his mother, he speaks to John, he speaks to the thief, he speaks to the soldiers, to the crowd, to the world, and he speaks to us this morning. In seven sayings, even though three of them are addressed to the Father, the other four address a vast number of people. How other-minded he is. He has his wits about him, but in just a few sentences, he addresses seemingly everyone. Forgive them. Who's them? His enemies. Those who are in ignorance. The thief, who spoke badly, both thieves. The soldiers. The crowd who said, crucify him. The world which rejected him. He came to his own, but his own knew him not. How other-minded. He was present every second on the cross. But in those six hours, he's thinking of everyone. He doesn't leave one of us out. He prays for his own. He prays for those who rejected him. How other-minded. 
But one more thing before we come to the verse we'll have to spill over into next week. Notice the gospel emphasis in his final words. Father, forgive them. What's the great need of men and women and children? Forgiveness. And the first thing he says is about forgiveness. Forgiveness to those that sit in darkness, to those who are ignorant, to those who knew nothing of what they were doing and they were saying. Ignorance. Those who sit in darkness. No. These seven sayings, they won't be words of self-pity. Just think of what you would say. Excuses. None of that. Self-pity. None of that. Injustice. None of that. Help from heaven. None of that. Responding to the jeering of the crowd. None. Answering the thieves. None of that. You see, we're going to focus on what the Lord said, but we have to notice what he didn't say. How significant that this is prayer, and then prayer, and then prayer. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prays for them. He prays for you this morning. If you sit in darkness, if you don't know what I'm speaking about, if the cross doesn't mean anything to you, Christ is praying for them. Yes, he prays for his own, his elect, his chosen, the ones that he will suffer and die for, but he prays in a sense for all people as well, those who reject him in ignorance, the scoffers, the Jewish leaders. It's hard to pray for your enemies, isn't it? Somebody that said something wrong to you and about you and badly treated, instead of answering them back, putting it right, pray for them. That's searching. Somebody that's causing you pain, pray for them. This is what Christ is doing here. All the ones that cause him pain, he's praying for. That's difficult at work, isn't it? At school, that bully, the one in your class that mocks you, your appearance, pray for them. It's what the Lord does. Well, we can notice as well, he prayed for them, his enemies, he prays, and this prayer is powerfully answered. Just look at Acts chapter 3 and verse 17. A very significant verse, which is mentioning the events that we're looking at. Acts 3, 17. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he says this, and now, Acts three seventeen. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it. 
as did also your rulers. The same word as mentioned in our text. Our text says, for they know not what they do. Peter says they did it ignorantly. Peter says, you put him to death and you did it without really knowing what you were doing. You crucified the Son of God. You crucified the sinless, perfect, righteous Son of God. You did it in ignorance. 3,000 were converted that day. The penny dropped. Christ's prayer in Luke 23 has been answered. Forgive them, for they ignorantly do what they do. They know not what they do. It's the same phrase. Peter, no doubt, is remembering what Christ said on the cross. And in that moment, as Peter preaches, 3,000 come from darkness to light, in ignorance no longer. You can notice as well that Christ is praying for his own, I could quote John 17, 20, Neither pray I for these, the apostles alone, but for them which shall believe on me through their word, through Peter's word, through the apostles' preaching, through remembering what Christ said on the cross when he prayed, forgive them for they know not what they do. Christ identifies his own. He prays for souls. I was looking this week at a very interesting book. There's many of them in the vestry. If you come and see me, I'll show you. This is a book which was a collection of sermons by the pastor of this church who was here for 60 years, 18 74, I think, to 1934, thereabouts. Pastor Wren, he was a very short man. He had to stand on a box in order that you could see him. He was under five foot tall. Well, at the turn of the century, they published his sermons each week. And it says, Providence Baptist Chapel. Here's a sermon. I just happened to open it here. A voice from heaven. But then it says the times of the services. And this is what strikes in my mind. Three prayer meetings a week. Lord's Day morning, 9.30, while the Sunday school was going on, same as we do today. This was 8th of February, 1914. War was about to break out. Monday evening, 7.30, prayer meeting. Same as we do today. Saturday evening, 6.30, a prayer meeting to pray for the Lord's Day. Three prayer meetings each week. How interesting. We still have three. We have one at Sunday morning for ten minutes to pray for the preaching of God's Word on the Lord's Day. We don't pray for anything else. We have our focus, the Lord's Day. 
the preaching of his word. What do we do on a Monday evening? We pray for souls. We pray for the people of the church. We pray for needs. What do we do on a Thursday evening when we gather? Every other week just for prayer and other weeks for Bible study, we pray. What did the Lord Jesus do on the cross? He prayed. Isn't he teaching us that prayer is vitally important? A Christian who doesn't pray is like a human being that doesn't breathe. It's impossible. If there's no prayer, there's no life. Do you gather for the prayer meeting? We're encouraged. We look back over the last few years, Monday evening, more and more and more. Gather for prayer. Some people join from the train on the way home from work, and I don't mind that. Some people join from the hospital bed because they want to be there. That's good, isn't it? Prayer to them is important. Wherever they can, they join for prayer. Verse 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. He's praying for unbelievers. He's praying for those that sit in darkness, in ignorance. Let me ask you another question. Why doesn't Christ forgive them? Maybe you've never thought of this. The paralyzed man, Jesus says, come forth, your sins are forgiven. The woman that washed his feet, your sins are forgiven. Why is it that Christ doesn't forgive the thief and the centurion? Well, forgiveness is a divine prerogative. And when Christ walked upon the earth and he forgave sins, he was demonstrating that he is God. But now he's not on the earth. If you think about it, he's lifted up. His feet are no longer on the earth. And while he's on the cross, he's there in his humanity. And he defers to the Father now. He's been lifted up. He's there in the role of substitute. He's identifying with his people. And so he asks the Father to forgive them. While on earth, he could forgive sin. But for these six hours, he becomes sin for his people. And so he asked the Father to forgive. Isn't it interesting that this first phrase, forgive them, deals with the greatest problem of the whole world, ignorance. Ignorance. We don't know God. We don't know his way. We don't know the truth. We don't know our sin. We don't feel our guilt. 
And Christ goes right to the heart of the issue. Forgiveness. If you've not been forgiven this morning, that's your biggest need. And the first thing that Christ says upon the cross is a prayer that you might feel your need of forgiveness, your need of a saviour, that you might know that you are in darkness. And everything you do to break God's laws is in a sense in ignorance, in a sense it's not. If you've got a measure of light, if you come here this morning, if you know the word of God, you're sinning against light. But Christ says, forgive them. It's as though he excuses you for your sin. I don't think that's fair. When I sin, it's a conscious choice. And yet, that's because I'm a believer. Those that were standing around that mocked him, he excuses the ignorant. What grace, what mercy from the Son of God in his final hours to desire that we should be forgiven. And that's his prayer for you this morning, that you might know the forgiveness of God through Christ who went to Calvary. May we learn of him the seven most important things, forgiveness, salvation, family love, the anguish of the Saviour, the suffering, the victory, and the contentment that everything was done. We continue, God willing, next.